Amen. Turn with me then to Matthew chapter 18 as we continue our series of expositions through this marvelous gospel. And we're going to hear something about the responsibility that we as Christians, namely as church members, that we have to one another, of what's been called upon us, the responsibilities that have been given to us, namely as members of the church together. And there's privileges that come with membership, but also there comes responsibility. And with that responsibility, as you can imagine, with many responsibilities and privileges, there's some joys, but then there's also, you might say, sorrows or difficulties or challenges there. I mean, have you ever been called or commanded to do something that you just, you didn't really want to do it at all? And you just wondered, there's got to be someone that can do this for me. There's got to be a way to get out of this. You know, maybe it's a chore uh, around your house. Again, when I was on the second story trying to clean my gutters, I kept thinking, no, I can pay somebody to do this. I can pay somebody to do this. I can pay somebody to do this. Or maybe it's a civic duty, like jury duty. Uh, Whenever I get that call, I just revisit in my mind that maybe professional jurors are not such a bad idea. Now, the Enrollment Act in our country of 1863, it accommodated such paid substitutes. The Enrollment Act of 1863 was, in a sense, the first national draft as the Union was looking to end the Civil War. But there was a provision in the Enrollment Act of 1863 that if you were rich enough, if you couldn't stand the thought of the battlefield, you could, for $300, provide yourself a substitute, effectively someone to take your place in the ranks on the battlefield. And it might seem some like cowardice, Maybe to others, it seems like it's a win-win. You know, they get a little money. That is your substitute. Uh, You get out of the war. The country gets their soldiers. You might debate how committed those soldiers were. Some substitutes made it uh, a life's provision to continue to uh, substitute for someone and then uh, go AWOL and then be a substitute again. And you can imagine uh, they were not the greatest of soldiers. Well, the point is this, that some perhaps have wished that you could find a substitute for church life, especially when it gets mucky, especially when it gets hard, when it gets rough. Some have wished that there might be a provision that you could get a substitute when there, to, to take your place when there's conflict involved in the church. Can I just get someone to take my place, someone to do that part for me? I don't want to do that. Can't, don't we just pay the pastors to do that? Can I just let the really devoted, you know, theologically minded people handle that one? Well, our text tells us this morning that no, you can't. There are no paid substitutes in church life. And namely, as it regards, as we're going to talk about this morning again, to revisit membership, discipline, and even conflict in body life. This is not a responsibility that you as a member can opt out of, that you can ignore, or that you could buy your way out of. The word for us this morning is this, Christ leads His church. He leads the gathering, the assembly of the saints in a local church, to declare authoritatively who God's people are. And the emphasis or implication in Matthew 18 is who God's people are not. It works on both sides. And so for us then, taking that theological truth that Christ leads His church, He leads the assembly to declare authoritatively who God's people are, you then need to realize, you need to understand the kind of commissioning you've been given by the Lord Jesus if you're a member here. You need to understand the very empowerment that's been given to you, the authority that's given to you by King Jesus from on high, so that you can take care to use such authority responsibly. You've been given much, and so then much is required. 
to find this and to unpack this theological truth, we're going to ask three questions of the text and answer those to make this more clear, to undergird this theological statement that Christ leads His church to authoritatively declare who the members are, who God's people are. And the first question we need to ask and answer is this, who has such authority? Who has this authority and responsibility to say who the members are, who's in and who's out of the church? Well, the answer is, as we've already said, that authority rests actually with the church, with the local church, not just with her leaders or her elders or a pastor. That power actually rests in the collective agreed word of the congregation. That's what we'll see here. And so to see this, though, we have to review the context where we've been in Matthew 18, especially if you're new here, or it was a couple weeks since I was last in the pulpit. But what we've been seeing in Matthew 18, Jesus lately, he had set out the process for how to deal with sin in the congregation. This process we call restorative church discipline. This process begins or becomes needed when sin is present, and namely that your brother, your fellow member, family member of the faith, your brother, he's in sin and he won't turn from it. He's captivated by it. In the language we saw earlier in Matthew 18, he's stumbling. He is, in the picture of the sheep, he's a sheep who's wandered away from the fold and in danger, being captivated by his sin. And so then you, the brother who first witnessed this, you have been sent and commissioned on mission to go rescue him. Remember, we saw that in verse 15. And it begins by, first, you go and do this privately. You call him to repentance just between him and you. Now, but if that doesn't work, you're supposed to go and invite other brothers to go and establish the charge with you. You get one or two to establish the charge, it reads in verse 16. We talked about this last time. But then on occasion, there comes when the erring brother still won't own his sin. He still won't turn from it. And you know at that point, then the spiritual danger we're talking about, this is a grave danger. This is a great spiritual problem that the sin has so hardened and so captivated our brother that next, the third step, is that the entire church has to be notified. But why are they notified? It's not just so we can have good gossip. It's not so they can know this piece of information as a headline out there. Why are they notified? But they're notified to be conscripted into this rescue mission. Look at verse 17. If he, the brother, refuses to listen to them, that's the few that have talked to him now, tell it to the church. Why? Because here's the implication. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the church, that means the assembly of God's people, they are then to go call him to repentance. And yet, if he still won't even listen to the church's call, the collective membership, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, there come times when the one who is thought to be a brother, still and even still, he clings to his sin. He denies his wrong. He refuses to let go of it. In a word, we say he's unrepentant. And such that if he will not heed the warnings of the church and the assembly, then he can no longer be associated with the church or that assembly. Let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. In other words, he's going to be an outsider. That's the grave, sobering conclusion to the discipline process. This authoritative, 
proclamation by the assembly that this person should no longer be considered a Christian. That's the setting that then sets up verse 18. That's the context. That's like the place setting at the restaurant as you sit down, as you come into verse 18, which reads, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now on its face, this whole language about binding and loosing, it seems mysterious. I mean, what particularly is being bound or loosed? What are we talking about? But and we'll say this repeatedly through this message as we bring light to this text. The light is found as you give way to the context. Don't excise these verses away from the very context and setting God has placed them. What was verse 17 talking about that came right before verse 18? We had a so-called brother thumbing his nose at these calls to repentance from the congregation. He won't repent. He won't listen. And so he's no longer to be treated as a brother. He's been removed from the membership of God's people. He's been, you might say, loosed from the church. That's what the binding and loosing is dealing with. You're bound to the assembly as a member or you're loosed from it. And you might say here that Matthew 18 is taking the negative angle. We're highlighting the loosing aspect. Well, the earlier reference, do you remember probably months ago now when we were in Matthew 16? That's the first time you hear of this reference of binding and loosing. You might say that's the positive angle. He was talking about building the church. And those were people brought in, bound to the assembly. In Matthew 16, Jesus spoke of building the church. Remember, around that confession of faith and trust in Christ. Because remember the context, Matthew 16, Jesus posed that question to the believers there, or excuse me, to the disciples. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the one that came out and said, you, Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, yes, I'm going to build my church on that confession. I'm going to build my church on the rock of this confession of mutual faith in me. The church is built around Jesus and our faith in him. We are brought into the church. Heaven, so to speak, is open for us by the keys of this confession of our faith alone in Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 is where we first hear about binding and loosing. But as we talked about, when the things that come out of your mouth that you say you believe, when the things you claim to believe are contradicted by the way you live, namely an unrepentant sin, then the church has the right, more than that, the responsibility to unbind you, to loose you from the fellowship. You get in, you're bound to the church by faith of that confession, but you are loosed or released by unrepentant sin. That's what Matthew 18 is highlighting. But to our first key question is this, who does that? Who has the authority to bind and loose? Who on earth, literally, who on earth has the authority to say who's in and who's out of the church? Again, look at Matthew 18. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, Whatever you, now we talked about this the the last weeks, right? If you translate this in a southern way, okay, this you is not singular, it's plural. This is y'all. So verse 18, 
You might translate it in the South like this. Truly I say to you, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The you in this binding and loosing is a plural. It's a collective. It's a group of people. Who is it? Who's the people? Who's the y'all? Well, give way to the context. Look at verse 17. Who in this context must be the y'all that has the power and the authority to bind and loose? Who is it? But it's the church, the assembly. They are the one that make the judgment and make the declaration. They are the y'all that call the brother, the brother to repent. They are the y'all that must then loose him from their assembly. They, the y'all, the assembled church then is the one with the authority to bind and loose its members. The point is this, you, you, the members of Grace Bible, you are the one King Jesus has given that authority to. You possess the keys to the kingdom of heaven in that sense, to bind and to loose. You have the authority and so then the responsibility to declare who is with Christ and who is with us and who is not. Oh, but I don't want to judge. I don't really want to get involved in that. That sounds too messy. I don't know if I can handle this. Well, no, whether you have doubts about it or not, Jesus has given you such authority and responsibility. And he's equipped you for it by his Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. He's given you also his word. The point is, is he's given you the authority to make judgments in matters like these. King Jesus makes you adequate for this, not your feeling of adequacy. And so this is an authority that you cannot ignore. It's a responsibility that you cannot neglect. You can't outsource it to church leaders or just the serious Christians in the church. There's no provision for paid substitutes in this. It's a stewardship given by King Jesus. You can't plan to abstain or be absentee if you wish to be faithful. So what does all this mean? But that you, the members of Grace Bible, you are obligated to your fellow members here. Namely, about who is and who isn't a member you're the one ultimately responsible for the membership of this fellowship. It's not the elders alone. It's not your teaching pastor. It's not the elder chair. It's you or me and you, the collective members of our church. You're responsible before King Jesus. Yes, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks as well. The elders take point. We, we can be leaders and directors and teachers on these matters and must be namely about who members are and should be. But our job is not to control the membership role for you. Rather, we're to equip you for the work of ministry, which a big part of that work is actually to figure out who members should and shouldn't be, who should be bound and loosed. And let me say it here, a great part of us equipping you for the work of ministry, Ephesians chapter 4, is actually to let you know you have that ministry. Be faithful own this, which first means owning the spiritual health of your fellow members. And for the first step, that might mean actually for you to actually join a local church, to become a member. So to that, cast your lot with us. 
Show us you're committed to us, that we can be committed to you, that you're willing to submit to the leadership of the congregation, and that we can hold you accountable, and you want to hold us accountable to walk with Christ. Side with us. Join this local church, or find one you can join if it can't be here. And after that, though, see that if you are a member, recognize Jesus has given you the keys. He's given you authority. He's given you a power. He's given you a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your fellow members, your fellow confessors and believers in Jesus at Grace Bible Church. So then you have to ask, well, what does that look like? What can I do to encourage them? How can I help them walk in Christ's likeness? How, How can I do spiritual good to them, to the brother and sister right next to you? What does that look like? Well, if you're still at a loss, Reconsider the one another commands of Scripture. The one another commands of Scripture. And if you remember here, you should know what those are. They're in our relational peacekeeping commitment document. Do you remember that when you became a member? Because you said you read it. (laughs) And in the relational commitments, you can find it on our website. Go to what we teach. And in there, there'll be a link on the side, relational commitments. And like a couple pages in, we have, we are committed to one anothering. And then all we do is in a bullet point list, list for you all of the one another commands in Scripture with the Bible references. You're like, one another commands, what are those? Things like contribute to one another's needs, spur one another on to love and good works, love one another, give preference to one another, welcome one another, admonish one another, be united to one another, serve one another, and there's many more. If you're curious, how can I do spiritual good to my brothers and sisters in the faith? Review that list. But here's what might be different, and we, and we turn maybe our emphasis. It's this. Go review that list, not merely so you can be a better obedient Christian, though that, of course, would be good. But review that list so you can love your fellow brothers and sisters. Do it not for you to be a better Christian, but for them. Why? Because you love them. You love them like Christ loved them. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. And how are they going to be done good by you? Things like those commands that we just listed. Obey those commands not for you, but for them. Because they need you. We need one another. That's the very design of the church. We're a body. You don't cut off limbs or only associate with the noses, because those are your favorite. You need the toenails too, like me. Right? We're, We're a body and we own all of the body. May that show in our care for each other. Why? Because Christ loves the whole body. That's what membership's about. As members, we're not strangers that merely shop for the same sermons at a wholesale warehouse. This is not like GBC doesn't stand for Grace Bible Costco, right? It's Grace Bible Church, We're an assembly, a membership that loves those that Christ loves. And those are his members of the church. Such that you will love them like Christ does. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. That's where this begins. Us seeing and realizing this is a charge from the Lord Jesus. And it's our charge together. The second question we must ask is this. When do the members have this authority, the particular authority to bind and loose, to say who members are and who are not? And the short answer is when we have unity, when we have consensus about any matter regarding members. 
When do the members possess or exercise this authority to bind and loose? Well, the answer is there in verse 19. When we have agreement together as the congregation. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, many Bible students have assumed that the emphasis of verse 19 is just mainly a statement about prayer generally. That is, Jesus has changed gears, he's moved topics, he's been talking about discipline, but now we're going to go to prayer. That is, disjointed and excised from the context here. Some have fancied that if you can just find a couple Christians to pray with you about something, it's going to just compel the Father to move. But Jesus has not switched gears. We're still in the context of church discipline. We're still in the context of the church's authority and membership. We're still in the context of binding and loosing. And namely, you see that because there's this strong connection between earth and heaven. That's what Jesus explores in verse 19. How can there be such a strong connection between a declaration on earth and what heaven has actually decided? Well, first of all, did you notice there was a strong connection in verse 18 when he talked about binding and loosing? Look at that connection between heaven and earth as he describes it back up to verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed where? But in heaven. You see that? The church's proclamations on earth about binding and loosing actually correspond to what the Father has decided in heaven. That's weighty. How could that be? How could what we say on earth actually reveal the mind of God in heaven? Well, that's what he explains in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Did you see it there? This connection again between heaven and earth. If two of you agree on earth, it will be done by my Father where? But in heaven. That's the connection once more. So it was no accident when Jesus made that seemingly audacious claim in verse 18 that there's some correlation between what we do as the church and what the fathers decided in heaven. It's true. The church's declarations on earth, namely about bindings and loosings, show forth what the fathers already established in heaven. Indeed, that's what this agreement is all about. That's what's in view. This is about membership and discipline, binding and loosing. This is not just a general comment about prayer. But now to our question, when? When does the church speak with such authority? How can we be so confident? When can we be so sure that we actually speak for heaven? Again, listen to verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. When's this going to happen? Well, when you have two members agree. In other words, this picture is there must be a consensus. There must be a consensus about the decision and declaration. That is, when Jesus calls you into the church and he gives you the keys to bind and loose, this is not, this is not some personal authority. That we all have our own little keys to have a power trip with. That you've been commissioned by Jesus to start judging everybody, especially on the internet. 
This is a shared authority. This is a key we all carry together and turn the lock of heaven, so to speak, together. It's like the nuclear launch codes given to our president. On a whim, he cannot just go launch the codes or launch the missiles by his codes, namely just because he's the commander-in-chief. No, there's many safeguards even within the military to make that happen. They have to call it together. So a member of the church cannot just go nuking people out of the church because they feel like it or they don't really like them anymore. No, it becomes clear. That's not how Christ's will is revealed. Christ's will is revealed. It comes clear through the unified decision, the consensus of the body. We see this lived out actually in the letters to the churches. Namely, as Paul writes his second letter, or the second letter we have anyway to the Corinthian church, we hear this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll only be there a moment, so just listen very closely. But look it up later. Paul's describing the punishment or excommunication that was given upon an erring, unrepentant brother. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. For such a one, okay, that's the unrepentant brother, this punishment, excommunication, by the majority is enough. Now, he's writing to the local church. And it's interesting Then he says, the punishment by the majority is enough. The consensus, in other words, the majority of the church exercised their authority to rightly have the erring brother removed. But now, Paul understands his punishment's been enough. Why? Because Paul has special knowledge here. He knows this guy who was removed for being unrepentant, that he has turned and he's now repentant. And so he encourages the majority again, the church, to receive him back in a unified consensus. But the point is this that I want to highlight. Paul uses that term majority to point to this agreement of the body, the relative consensus, to put him out. And now he says, may there be a consensus to receive him back. Back to our text then. The notion of that majority of the members, it's captured by the expression, if two of you agree. The church members' agreement uncovers the thinking, the moving, the revealing of the will of our Father in heaven. So if there be no consensus or agreement, so we seek the Lord as we pray, then we can have little confidence that we're actually speaking for heaven if there has been no consensus. But if there be unity, a clear majority a clear consensus, then what Jesus is saying here, we can speak with confidence, even on earth, about the revealing of our Father's will from heaven. Such that if there's a consensus and agreement in humility and unity, we can know that the Lord is in it. Again, verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, or really the context here would be any charge, Again, remember discipline. It's kind of language used here. Of any charge about a brother they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And again, you see it, that correlation that whatever we bind or loose on earth already corresponds to what the Father has worked and declared in heaven. Now, as we turn to ourselves and how this plays out, if we're talking about a general and not absolute unanimous agreement, if we're talking about a majority opinion here, that means there are going to come, might come times where you're not in the majority. 
that you're in the minority. What then? How do we handle that? What if the majority opinion of the church is not your own? Well, here's what you do. In light of the Lord's will, to find the Lord's will, what do you got to do? You got to pray. You got to pray. You got to pray with your fellow brothers and sisters. You got to seek the Lord together earnestly. We want unity. We want consensus. That's what the Lord wants for his church, that we would be one. Pray for that. And pray for the brothers with you that disagree, that the Lord would make this clear. That's where it starts. But second, if, still, if you're still in the minority opinion, submit your objections once again to the authoritative revealed will of God, what we find in his word. Are your objections driven by spiritual principles or personal opinions? What does the Lord's word say about this membership or discipline case? But third, it might come to it that you just need to trust your fellow members. You need to trust that actually Christ speaks through them, through the consensus, the majority of your fellow members. And so if you can't convince them otherwise from Scripture and by good reason, you ought to submit your judgment to the majority of the congregation. We trust one another then. We submit to one another. We follow their consensus. We trust that they are godly, that they are spirit and dwell, that they're God-fearing believers. We trust that our fellow members want what Christ wants. They want what's best for the church. And so we wholly embrace the majority opinion, trusting Christ and them over our own opinion. And this creates space for unity where there need not be uniformity. But most of all, you understand it demands faith. Of course, it demands faith in one another, but it demands faith in the very words of Christ we see here. That turns to our third question. Why does it work this way? Why do the members have this authority? How can I ever trust and submit myself to these brothers and sisters? Can I really trust them? Why should I? Well, that answer comes as we consider Jesus' own rationale that he gives in this text. Why do the members possess this authority, why should I trust them? Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now again, much like the previous verse, many dear Christians have clung to this verse as some kind of assurance or justification for all kinds of things. Namely, they will use this verse to say, see, you don't even really need to be at church. I'll just find two or three other believers and Christ is with us. No, that's not what this is about at all, is it? Again, give heed to the context. What has this context been about? It's been about binding and loosing. It's been about binding members or loosing them. And so then to excise this verse from its context, understand you're you're undermining Jesus' whole point here. This isn't about Jesus' presence and influence when you just want to have it. Jesus is making a promise. He's making a theological statement that serves as the very ground, the foundation, for why it is the church has the authority and the right to do what they do with binding and loosing. Because first of all, as you look at verse 20, did you notice it begins with the word for? Verse 20 then is logically and grammatically connected to verse 19. So here, verse 20 again in light of that, for, so here it is, here's the reason this works, here's why we on earth can bind and loose and it speaks for heaven, for, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. 
Now, there's so much here, but there's two components we need to highlight now. First, see that there is a gathering in space and time. Second, notice that Jesus' very presence is in that gathering. Let's take that. Because first, notice this. The actual assembling, the actual congregating of the congregation is key. Read verse 20 again. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. At first, the power comes in the two or three being gathered, not scattered. They are assembled in the same location. What is that picture? They are physically united. They are together as an assembly. Remember, we talked about this from Matthew 16. That's what the word church actually means. It's just an assembly. In this case, assembly of believers. That is, this is not an assembly or gathering of people just on a street corner. This is a gathering of the faithful. Even here, he knows that they are gathered in my name, in Jesus' name. They're assembled in unity with like faith and purpose in Christ. That is, this local church, which perhaps a local church can be as small in certain cases as two or three, that assembly of the saints in like faith or purpose is where this power resides. But even, ver- oh, even notice in verse 20 as it opens, Observe that the location, the actually assembling together is so very important in space and time. Again, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there. Now, but there must be a clarification. The where and there, the location are very important, but it's not because church buildings are sanctuaries. Very intentionally, we don't call this a sanctuary, this room. You can call it the worship center. You can call it the auditorium. You can call it a gathering place if you want but it's not a sanctuary. Sanctuary means a holy place, a place where God meets His people. If this room ever serves as a sanctuary, it does not, does not inherently do so. There's nothing special about the carpet in here. There's nothing special about these chairs, though aren't they cozy? Nothing special about the lighting. There's nothing special about the number on our address, 1200 Coalfield, that that's the only place God meets people, thankfully. Because understand, as soon as God's people gathered, scatter out of here, once we disperse, this place ceases to be a sanctuary. And yet, even so, even so, notice the location, the where and there are very important. But what makes it so? If it's not the address. Understand, in Old Testament Israel, the address was very important. God met His people in the temple. You wanted to go interact with God, you could go meet God in a special way at the temple. He was always there, dwelling above the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim in the most holy place. But now, in the new covenant, God does not inherently live in that building or any building. And yet, He's here right now. Why? Read verse 20 again. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Brothers and sisters, your feet are on holy ground right now. But why? Because Jesus said, there am I among them. The them is what makes the location special because that's where Christ stands. Not at 1200 Coalfield, but in the gathering of the believers at Grace Bible. Why? How can that be? So whether it's this room or it's out in the parking lot at a baptism or if we gather at the river, 
When the church is assembled together, maybe we go to a conference center. Wherever we go, as we assemble as the church, there you will find holy ground. Why? Because by the mercy bought by the blood of Jesus, a holy God can live with his people. Such that he can say, there am I among them. And that's the only way. But it's an effective way. More effective than all of our songs all of our sacrifices. The blood of Christ is why we know Jesus is here. And his presence among us as the assembled church gives us the confidence, even the confirming authority that we we indeed speak for heaven when we talk about our members on earth. That we can be assured that what we say on earth is revealing the will of our Father in heaven about who is bound and loosed. We can be sure heaven agrees. Why? Because as we gather as the redeemed, as we gather as a local church on earth, it's not just a physical gathering of people. It's the assembly of Jesus, where Jesus is there guiding his people, bringing us to unity and a consensus. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So then to revisit our three questions with now clearer answers, Who on earth has the authority of heaven to declare who God's people are? The assembly of the church itself. The members get to say who fellow members are. When do the members have this authority? When we're together, when we're agreed, when we have unity and a consensus. That's the assurance that Christ is leading us. And finally, why do the members have this authority? Because Christ indwells and inhabits his people. He inhabits the assembly of his people. He stands in the church. He guides us. Now, we've studied this in principle here in Matthew 18. But let's see it play out practically in the life of a local church. Turn over with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we find this. We find the very instance of church discipline taking place under the instruction of the Apostle Paul. This is something like a case study to the principles of discipline we've seen. Now first, as chapter 5 begins of 1 Corinthians 5, in verse 1, Paul points out the evident and scandalous sin committed by one of their brothers, one of the members. Verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now note this, the process that we unpacked in Matthew 18 of those progressive steps of first you go one-to-one and then few-to-one and then church-to-one, Paul seems to have skipped all three of them and going straight to step four. The specific process wasn't heated here. He just says the unrepentant man needs to be removed. Now why is that? Why would you skip steps one, two, and three? In short, what does he say in verse one? This sin is so public and so obvious and so scandalous. Even to the unbelieving world, they see the horror of this. We we don't need to coddle this believer so-called any longer in his sin. It's so public, it's so egregious, it demands immediate removal. And yet, even though that's Paul's opinion on this, that's his judgment, he does not, or should I say he cannot, unilaterally just have the man dismissed and removed. 
That's not in his power. But where is it? Well, we learn from Matthew 18. It's in the churches. It's in the assemblies. So look at verse 4 then. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4. He says, when you are assembled, church, when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, he's given his counsel, his, his own opinion on this, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. He's to be delivered over. The Corinthians are the ones to remove this guy. That's why it's dependent upon them actually getting together and assembling. And that means only when they gather as a church. They gather in the name of Jesus. Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to Matthew 18, verse 20? Furthermore, they are to deliver him namely because the power of Jesus empowers them. It accompanies the assembly, the church, to make this move. And why is that? Well, what do we see from Matthew 18? It's because Jesus is there inhabiting the gathering of his people. That's why it's so important for them to actually assemble. So then on to verse 5, they are to deliver him, the unrepentant man, over to Satan. That is to remove him from the kingdom of Christ and deliver him back to the kingdom of Satan. To loose him from the membership. But again, to rehearse the way verse 4 starts, they could only formally do this as or when they gather together as the church. For that is when they wield the keys, the authority of Christ. So church, the call then for us is care for the church. Care for your members like Christ does. That's the call of every member to every other member. But we can't do this, can we, on our own? There's no way. We need his word. Maybe you feel like it more than ever. Maybe you just walked in this morning, you had no idea Jesus had given you this call. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit to indwell you. And he's given you the presence that he has among the gathered. Oh, we need that, don't we? And maybe you feel like it. I need it more than ever right now. And maybe you don't even feel his presence. Yet we know by the promise of the gospel, his presence is here. So lean into him and be faithful if you're going to be faithful to this call. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, he declared. And understand, he could never be here with you and me because we're so holy of ourselves, right? Because we're so righteous of ourselves, because we're an expository preaching church, because we give to missions. That's not why he's here. He's not here because we finally got it together. No, the holy God is here only because Jesus died and took all our sin. That's why he's here. That's why you have confidence to draw near. That's why you can have the full assurance of faith as you call upon him and as we do so together. That's our hope. It's Christ alone. We have nothing to offer him. We have no life with God apart from him. It cost Jesus' life, his death for our sins and his resurrection to be here. He is alone the reason that he can be with us and in us and among us. So first, I just have to say, is that true about you personally? Is Christ in you? Do you trust him? Have you confessed him? Do you follow him? Is he your only hope before God? If he is, then know you're part of his church. So then care for your fellow members in Christ. Care for us 
that no one among us would ever drift from so great a Savior and salvation. Do not let, brothers and sisters, our love for sin ever move us away from Christ. Don't let us do it. But bind us to Christ, bind us to the gospel, and so bind us to the fellowship of his saints in this church. We need his help to do that. Let's ask him. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we confess this is a a weighty call and one that we are not worthy of. We remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 2 where he says, or is it 3, who's sufficient for these things? And yet you've given us your spirit, you've given us the gospel, just as you've given us the charge, we trust you'll equip us for the work of ministry you've given us. Help us as the elders and shepherds to equip the body for this. Help us as a body to move forward in unity, to be faithful. Help us to have an eye to care for all of the body that you've given. Many more that you would bring into our midst. They, they, they would know and experience your care as we care. But we are weak, we are inadequate, and we've failed in ways, though I delight to proclaim I've seen your faithfulness many times over in this congregation. May we excel still more because you are a gracious God worthy of it. It's in Christ's name alone we pray.